I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So good evening everyone, um, and thank you from me as well for coming out to this very special event to launch Sean Newitt's new memoir, All Down Dark and Swine. As I said, I'm Andrew McMillan, and I'm honoured to be hosting one of my really good friends tonight. Many of us in the room will know Sean as a poet. His first collection, Tongues of Fire, won the Lowell Prize, shortlisted for a plethora of other prizes, including Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, John Pollard Foundation International Poetry Prize, and many, many others. He's won a Northern Writers Award, a Resurgence Prize in Poetry, an Eric Gregory Award for Poetry. But this evening, we're getting to know him as a writer of prose and as a memoirist, with this mesmerising achievement that is all down darkness wine. It's a remarkable three-dimensional excavation of grief, of loss, of queer desire and longing, and it's haunted by the ghosts of regrets and history. It is, as the great Comte Bean has already said, a beautiful, complex and textured mediation on love. And it has, we found out today, despite it only being the publication day this morning, already sold out its entire first print run. So the copies that we have in the shop to buy after the event are going to become collector's items. There's <laughs> even more um, reason to grab one. And so as we said, the way that we're going to do it tonight is we're going to hear um, Sean Reed from the opening of the book. We're going to have a little chat between ourselves and um, we're going to hear another reading before we open out to you all. And then we're going to close by just hearing another final moment from the book. And then you can all kind of chat to Sean about that and get them signed as well. So... Thank you all very much for coming, and I'm going to hand over to Sean just to give us a taste of the opening of the book. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah, great. Um, well, it's really lovely to be here and to see so many people. Uh, I've not got my glasses on, so if I'm staring kind of blankly at you, it's, cause, it's not because I don't remember you. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to um, read the very opening page of the book to begin with. Um, it's a memoir, but uh, it's also got a number of unreal uh, characteristics. So there are ghosts in the book um, that come through at various points in the narrative. Um, it starts off in a cemetery in Liverpool. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where we are. Uh, so I'll read you the opening page or so. The oratory of St. James's Cemetery in Liverpool has no windows along the whole length of its outer walls. Only a long rectangular skylight, its leaded panes half mossed over, lets the winter sun reach down and touch the white marble statues staring blankly inside. A mortuary chapel, but long closed up, its coffered ceiling and tall carved columns are mostly in shadow. Years ago, as the great homes of the city were pulled down stone by stone, monuments of proud families, monuments of terracotta and marble and bronze 
were hoisted here and locked away. And so the wealth of the city, wrenched from far off lands and furnished from blood, was hidden and so forgotten. And as the years went by, other things were hidden too. Some, like the terrace slums of the poor and their wash houses, were raised. Others, the orphanages and workhouses, the asylums and the homes for the destitute, were emptied one by one, turned by sharp-suited businessmen into flats or bars or restaurants, where the names of the dead, engraved in plaques on newly pointed walls, were the climbing holds of a city once again dragging itself up out of its own grave. And so the churches and the crypts were closed, and the docks shut down, and the shackles shipped and left on other shores, and the subterranean tunnels and the catacombs were filled in with stones, and the quarry was planted with oaks and with sycamores and with the bodies of the dead. And it was in this way that the ghosts of the city were parceled off, ushered from the streets into derelict buildings, made to stand in exhibition cases, hurried into the pages of books and diaries and folded away. For, after all, ghosts can only live in the darkness. And once the dark places are closed up, their cast iron locks bolted fast. It is easy for those who do not live with them to pretend that ghosts do not exist at all. Thank you. So I guess, first of all, Sean, before we get into the, the kind of meat of the book and, and have a think about what it's doing, I just wondered how it felt to, to kind of have it in the world. It's a book that I know you've been living with for a long time and kind of wrestling with and writing. And so how does it feel now to have, have these finished copies? Good. I mean, it's a relief in many ways. Um, it's taken me, I think, um, between four and five years to, to write. Um, so... You know, you don't, you never really write expecting it to be physical on a page and read by other people. Um, and I guess you uh, that's kind of the completion of the book then once people start reading it. Um, so it feels really nice to have it out in the world. Um, it's been kind of a long time coming uh, and it feels uh, like a relief in a way uh, to have so many years of life kind of packed away in a little box. Uh, that's nice. Uh, so, yeah. And in the introduction, <clears throat> as I was kind of talking, I used that word excavation because it, it struck me, you know, reading this again, but reading it kind of in, in proof and kind of seeing the different drafts of it, that there's like, there, would, there was a simpler and much less interesting way to write this book, which would have been just to tell it in a very linear way. And one of the kind of brilliant things in here is how you're able to kind of dig down into these different episodes or, or different parts of a life to kind of fathom down mm. into these different layers. So you end up with something that feels much more three-dimensional. Mm. And I just wondered for you what that process was like of kind of drawing these different connections, these different incidents together into this kind of tangible thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it became clear as I was writing the, the story that it would have to 
be in some way non-linear. Um, so I kind of think of it as a sort of gothic memoir. Uh, I mean, you heard in the in the beginning there, it kind of opens like a like a gothic novel. Um, and the reason that I wanted it to be like that was because I think the gothic is really good for for making um, the present moment porous to the past. And you have these moments in gothic writing where the, the past bursts through into the present and kind of disrupts it. Um, and I wanted to have moments in the story that would be kind of like uh, trap doors in the in the narrative or something where you you think you're going in a linear fashion and then suddenly you, you fall um, back to a moment that uh, is almost kind of triggered by the 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 overarching narrative. Um, so I began to move backwards in in time um, and to meet kind of ghosts along the way. So the book. Uh, takes place roughly over the course of a year, the main story. Um, and then it goes back about 160 years and we meet Gerald Manley Hopkins and then goes back about 100 years and we meet uh, Karin Boyer, a Swedish modernist poet. Um, and we also meet uh, myself as a young person, kind of down one of these rabbit holes. Um, and... I think I'm right in saying that the closer you get towards the end of the narrative, the closer um, the young person, Sean, and, and me writing the book get to each other. So they kind of become more proximate until the idea is that they kind of begin to integrate again. Uh, so the gulf of time is, is healed by the end. Um, so that was the idea behind the book. Um, and, um, you know, I, I open it, uh, by talking about um, the underworld or, or a sort of other world um, that these ghosts live in. Um, and I was quite interested uh, when I was writing it about these kind of voyages to the underworld or, or um, as acts of recovery. Uh, you know, you, you kind of go down into hell and you hope that there's something you can recover and bring back into the, into the present. Um, so... So that's kind of one of the overarching features of the of the book is that um, we begin to kind of tumble back with ghosts into uh, different bits of history and, and lift them through uh, as a way of kind of um, delivering something back to the present and, and perhaps learning something or uh, changing um, what we know of the context of, of the overarching story. And you mentioned there the kind of poets, and I, I want to jump back to them on a second, but just because of what you were saying there about fascinated by this idea of something that's porous and these ideas of kind of underworlds as well. There are a lot of kind of writers I know kind of in the audience, and I wonder, like, on a really practical level, what is it to construct something like that? Like, do you have on... Is it that on, above your desk in wherever you're writing, you kind of have all these sheets of paper kind of stuck to the wall where you've got the linear timeline but then these kind of fathoms beneath it? Or is it much more of a kind of collage effect that you are almost kind of bouncing from one thing that kind of bounces you into another memory. How, what is it kind of physically to construct something like that? Um, it's a good question. I'm not a very good, um, I'm not a very methodical planner. Uh, so it was probably all in my head. Um, but I guess if you spend long enough with something, you get to know it very well. So I knew, I knew the kind of um, architecture of, of the book and I knew where I was going with it. Um, 
I guess in some ways, you know, the tools I had available to me were the tools of a poet. Um, and so even though I, I don't think it shares many affinities with a poem, this book, um, I thought of it almost as a sort of um, grand poem in that sense, um, in which I could construct kind of imagistic echoes across. So, so in my head, I kind of structured it around images, um, those kind of uh, oranges that come back in the book and rolled R's and um, different things that I, you know, maybe they're not even meant to be noticed, but that was the way I kind of held it in my head to know like now this repeats, now something else repeats. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, when, when I felt that my detour had borne fruit, I returned to the surface and carried on and then I dipped down again. Um, so yeah, it was, I was looking for kind of trigger moments when I would yeah. go back in time. Yeah. It's interesting because you mentioned poetry again, like poetry, obviously because of your background just plays an incredible, an incredible kind of large part of this book. You mentioned kind of Gerard Manley Hopkins is one of the presiding spirits who kind of gives the book its title. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Swedish modernist poet as well. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk about some of those kind of poetic kind of presiding spirits that you are almost in dialogue with, I think, at, at moments during the book. Yeah. I mean, so Hopkins is, is kind of one of the main characters in the book, uh, although he doesn't speak. Um, he just is there through his, through his work. Um, and I guess it seemed that... He's always been someone I, I'm fascinated by. For, for those of you who, who don't know him, he's a priest poet, um, a Victorian priest poet um, who was also gay, um, but for obvious reasons not out. Um, and he has these, these diaries in, in which he kind of lists all of uh, his shame. Um, they can kind of be funny in some ways, um, in a cruel way, you know, like he, uh, every time he ejaculates he he writes oh for old habits in his diary um so like as i was going um back he just sort of became this presiding ghost over the over the narrative for thinking about shame and religion and uh what it might do to a person's mindset and in some ways he's a, a guardian in the book and in some ways he's also a warning in the book, I think the, the ghosts in the book also serve as um, warnings not to repeat a cycle. Um, so it's a, it's a way of breaking free of the, the, psych, the kind of historical cycle in the book. Um, the other poet is, is Karin Boyer, who is a Swedish modernist poet um, from, uh, from Gothenburg. Um, and uh, the, she comes up, uh, so a lot of the book takes place in Gothenburg in Sweden. Um, and there is a little statue of her just outside the, the library there. Uh, and it's something I used to walk past every day. And when I was living in Sweden, I bought this little second-hand copy of Karin Boyer's poems uh, and began to translate them. Um, and so the act of translation becomes important in the book as, as a sort of way in which poets her poetry becomes a sort of intercession between me and Elias, who is another main character in the book. Uh, so between translating uh, these poems, 
uh, we come to know each other's mindsets uh, in new ways that were difficult to articulate outside of the poems. So uh, there's a kind of central sequence in which we go back and forth deciding on what word goes where. Um, and eventually uh, we kind of piece something together out of the past that makes sense uh, between us. Uh, that is neither me nor him, but some other thing, um, which is a, a sort of a gift from Karen Boyer. Um, so having those ghost poets uh, in the book, um, yeah, they sort of are like a, a family of ghosts uh, in some ways um, that I call up for help. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, staying with, with poetry in the poets for a moment, the, <clears throat> there are moments within the memoir that we, for people that have read Tongues of Fire, and if you haven't, you really should because it's quite remarkable, there are moments that are alluded to in terms mm. of fire, aren't there? There are, that you've, there are moments that we have kind of glimpsed or that we've kind of been in the room for, but in the medium of poetry, mm. in terms of fire. And it, it's such a rare thing, to, I think, to then re-inhabit it in a different medium. Mm. And I just wondered what it was to, to re-enter that moment that maybe a poem can get away with just kind of glancing at or glimpsing, or it can be a line, it can be a veiled illusion to something. Mm. Here, there's so much kind of stark detail mm. and kind of forthright attention to what was going on, mm. which is so much part of the power of the book. And I just wonder what it, yeah, what, what was it like to, to have to re-inhabit those moments or to, to revisit those moments, but with the arsenal of prose at yeah. my fingertips? Um, well, in some ways, you know, I, that I did have a, a bit of an anxiety about doing that because um, the the poems don't give away a lot of information, you know. And you know, I know readers have kind of read other stories into them. Mm -hmm. um, and in providing this, I'm almost like saying that is actually what the poems are about. So I kind of cut off an interpretive route, right? I, I kind of give the the author isn't dead, <laughs> like this is what uh, it's about. Um, so that was a little bit, um, I was a bit nervous about that, but I guess with prose, I found that, you know, there are, there are downsides and, and positives. One of them is that you just can't really get away from um, giving motivation or detailed information or um, narrative, uh, you know, if in a poem I say, I, I, I walked into this room and I saw that, in prose you have to know why I'm in the room, you know, in what context I'm in the room, where do I go when I leave the room, you know, the, it follows you everywhere. Um, so you just have to get used to, to being very transparent in a way in prose, or very honest, because um, there's nowhere to hide, really. Uh, I mean, I, I have hidden a bit, I've made ghosts in the, in the, in the book, but... Um, yeah, I, it's a very different medium. Um, and in some ways, the, the form, I found that the form of this book began to be a sort of um, happy uh, collaborator or um, in that the form makes things possible for you to do and it kind of suggests things to you as well. You know, as, you, as you're writing, um, because it's in prose and because you've taken this structure, the form says, why not go there next? Or, or why not kind of uh, turn around and come back? Or you need to give us more information about this. So 
uh, you have to kind of work in tandem with it. Um, and I guess, you know, in some ways you, you make it up as you go along. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm very comfortable with what a poetic line does yeah. or what a stanza does. Um, with this, I felt like I was discovering as I went, um, which is perhaps why it took longer. Um, but also, I think it taught me a lot, this book. Um, and yeah, yeah. I love that phrase that it follows you everywhere. That seems mm. to be such like an interesting kind of summation of kind of that, that difference between prose and poetry. And I guess, just follow on from that slightly, did it, did it always suggest, when this idea was forming and when it was kind of coming in this way, I'm always fascinated by people, you know, because we should say, you know, you write poetry incredibly well, you write academic prose incredibly well as well, you write, you know, you've written here kind of memoir prose. At what moment does the form or the genre, I guess, even begin to suggest itself? Did this always feel as though it had to be this kind of three-dimensional kind of excavation of memoir mm. or kind of the, this kind of haunted memoir, I guess, this gothic memoir? Um, and at what point, when you can work in all these different mediums, at what point does the form announce itself? Or what point does the genre make itself known in that process? It didn't make itself known very early on, to be honest with you. I, I, I began writing this. The first line is the, the first line I wrote. You know, the, the first couple of pages of this came out. Um, in fact, about 20 pages were a description of this graveyard in Liverpool in which I met or in which a character met uh, the ghost of Gerald Manny Hopkins. Um, and then I very kind of quickly realized that the character was me. Um, and so that's where it became uh, clear to me that it was probably a memoir mm -hmm. uh, or autofiction. Um, I mean, I guess you could put different hats on, on this book according to, to, to what you wanted to call it. Um, but because it started off as a novel, um, and because I wanted to move beyond uh, what I thought of as the sort of factual language of nonfiction, um, I, in my head, I sort of borrowed the forms of the novel and the Gothic novel in which to write the memoir. Uh, so I wrote it as a, mem uh, as a novel in which I am the, the main character. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so that's, I guess it announced itself relatively early on, yeah. um, but the, the total structure of, of the book uh, took some figuring out. Um, I love yeah. the idea of kind of moving beyond the factual mm. as well, because I think, you know, one of, there's a, a quote that I've always loved by an Irish poet, Reetran Higgins, who has this wonderful delineation between what she describes as the what actually happened truth and the poetic truth, and they're actually kind of striving towards one and, and not the other. And with a you know memoir as a kind of idea that people it suggests a certain thing or a kind of certain um, kind of solidity of truth, mm. but I wonder kind of how much that idea of poetic truth and what actually happened truth, how how appropriate does that feel when we think about the medium of something like this, a kind of haunted memoir or autofiction, however we might describe. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess what I mean by not taking the factual tone of, of language. You know, I, I have written academic prose as well, yeah. and I definitely did not want to write a book that, that read like factual nonfiction. 
Um, and I felt that the, the tools that you have in the novel are to evoke atmosphere, to evoke, to evoke a kind of psyche, psyche mm. uh, and to, and to um, disseminate it through a landscape. Or, um, so I wanted, I wanted the book to have that character, that character uh, in which, you know, there are moments in the book where the world seemed to me quite unreal. Um, when it felt haunted or in which um, I was, I had, you know, anxiety often works in, in that way. You know, you're convinced something is going to happen even though it hasn't happened. So you begin to kind of populate the world around you with imagined things. Um, madness and, uh, and depression are kind of like that because, uh, you know, suddenly the person that you love is a different person and doesn't respond in the same way. Uh, and all of those are kind of gothic. That's what gothic literature does. Um, so I began to, to kind of uh, see that as, you know, what you might call the poetic truth of the situation uh, in which um, everything might appear uh, kind of terrifying or uh, dark or uh, untrustworthy. Um, but often that's how we feel about the world. You know, uh, if I came in and described this room on a good day or on a bad day, I might describe it very differently. So why not kind of imbue the texture of the book with, um, with, with character of... Uh... So yeah, I, I, wanted, I wanted to kind of get into that uh, possibility to, to make a, an atmospheric truth as well and... Uh, um, and an experiential truth, I guess, rather than a, a factual truth. Because uh, often those are, are very different things. You know? yeah. So atmospheric truth, an experiential truth, to add to poetic truth, mm. and then what actually happened mm. truth as well. Um, and just in a short while, I'm going to kind of um, come to you folks in the audience as well. So do be thinking of any questions that you've got for Sean. We've got a roving mic um, that we'll bring round to get those. Um, before we do that, I've got um, just a little other question, we're going to hear Sean read a bit more from the memoir. I think it's wet as appetite enough um, to hear. But I was just wondering, first of all, and I was wondering how to phrase this question, but kind of like what you view, if anything, as the purpose of this kind of thing. <laughs> um, um, because, you know, bringing these kind of different ghosts, there's the ghost of Hopkins that we kind of already mentioned, but there's the ghost of someone called Jack, mm. who we've not mentioned yet, who mm. is um, a former kind of partner who who takes their own life and so is this is this kind of writing this kind of haunted gothic memoir is it an exorcism is it about redemption is it for other people to find in that kind of Sharon Oldsian sense kind of use that other people going through a similar thing with their partner in their life might read this and find solace within it kind of what is it that how is it that you hope it exists in the world, I guess? <laughs> um, it's a good question. It's a big question. Um, and it's one that, I guess, depends on, on every reader. You know, the hope is that you, you make a book with enough complexity that it has um, someone entirely unlike you in an exterior sense might find little mirrors inside it. You know, there might be one person who opens it and it's a big beaming mirror, um, but for other people it might just be a fractured mirror. Um, I hope that, 
you know, it's a very vulnerable book. Uh, you know, I've been very honest in this book, uh, probably more honest than I'm comfortable with, but uh, it's done now. Um, and I wouldn't be that honest in the book if I didn't think that that had a, had a purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the idea is, you know, that in some ways, one of the key themes in the book is, is lying um, and lying a lot growing up. Uh, and covering covering my tracks, um, so it's important that the book was memoir because that seemed like a, an act of truth telling. So it kind of diffuses that. Um, but the the vulnerability in the book uh, also, I hope, kind of uh, extinguishes, or it has the potential to, I hope, um, extinguish shame. Uh, amongst a, a wide number of people, because if I tell you something that I'm ashamed about, and then you read it, and you think, ah, that's me too, suddenly you're not alone, it's not a secret, kind of, there's no shame left. Um, so that would be my kind of ideal hope, that this book would kind of begin to extinguish those, uh, those fictions, or those, those uh, pressures in people's lives. Um, with the ghosts, I guess in some ways the, the, the idea is a sort of rehabilitation of those ghosts or, or, or a welcoming in. I'll, I'll read a bit towards the end that kind of um, uh, begins to pull all the ghosts back from history um, and to attempt to make a sort of whole unashamed uh, new person uh, from, from it. Uh, so I hope in some ways it might be... Uh, it might prompt other people to 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 think in in this way or to or to reassess either the ways in which they're complicit in in the world or the ways in which they have uh, formed themselves in relation to um, the world around them, uh, and ask if is that the person you want to be or is that the person you are. Um, so yeah, very long-winded, but I guess my main purpose in writing a book is always to to try and make it as um, compelling as possible, by which I mean uh, I want someone to pick it up and to be transported for however long they're reading it as completely as possible into the life or thoughts or places of another person. Um, and I guess that's kind of about empathy. Uh, but also, you know... Um, yeah, I... I, I to have a relationship with the reader. Yeah. I mean, not me particularly, but the book and the reader uh, might build a relationship, so. That's a really beautiful yeah. and generous answer. Thank you, Sean. Um, and we're gonna hear, you talked about the, you know, needn't wanting it to be compelling, and I think we're gonna hear evidence of that now. So you're gonna give us a little, another reading from the book before we come out to the audience for, for questions. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Andrew knows this part of the book is true because I text him immediately afterwards. Um, Do you want me to read the text out first? <laughs> um, so uh, this involves, involves me and a, and a trainee priest. Back home in my room, I felt vulnerable and alone. The orange glow of the street lamps outside my window spread over the ceiling. 
and the shadows of people walking along the pavement elongated over the white plaster. As the people passed, the black forms shrunk and clustered across the cornicing until they vanished and were gone. I lay under the covers, freezing, the draft of a breeze cluttering the shutters occasionally, and my nose wet with the cold. My bed leant up against a boarded chimney breast, and inside I could hear voices echoing from the flats above, carrying through the hollow passages of the building, laughing, then silence, then again a voice. I did what I always did that year when I was alone and heart sore, took out my phone and tried to find someone to prize the light back in. Scrolling through the bright screen of photographs, messages buzzing through, I felt connected and desired. Eventually I found a man who wanted to come over. He was short, older than me, with dark hair and bright grey eyes and an odd innocence I couldn't place. When I opened the door of the building, he barely met my gaze, just ducked past me and hurried into the flat. He was furtive, like a man on the run, a man being watched. I closed the heavy blue door and clicked the latch, pointed him to the door of my room, which was ajar, and watched him as he went inside. I had barely seen his face. When I followed him into the room, he was standing by the bed and walked across to me. He hardly spoke. When I lent my face to his, at first he was quiet, then urgent, utilitarian. There was a sense of frustration and necessity to his movements, his hurried undressing, the lack of even friendly conversation I was used to. Straight afterwards, he got up to wash standing over the sink in the bathroom and splashing water over his face and neck and hands like a bird shivering itself clean. I could see him through the frosted glass of the bathroom door, which swung open on its hinge behind him. After he was done, he looked up at me, meeting my gaze. In a hushed voice, quite serious, he told me that he was in training for the priesthood, the priest who carried out home visits here, who I spoke to sometimes in the building's communal garden, was his mentor. The priest's car, an old duck egg Fiat, was parked near the entrance. The man needed to be invisible, to get out without being seen. I nodded my understanding and scanned the hallway before I gave him the signal that no one was outside. By the door, he checked his pockets, keys, wallet, presbytery keys, then left. Had he really just said that? I stood there quietly stunned as the latch clicked back into place. It was as though I had met a different version of myself. I felt sad, then comforted. There, walking off into the night, Turning the key in his car and driving away was a man I had escaped from being. But there was also a man who had not escaped. Astonishingly moving. Thank you so much, Sean. So now we've got time if people have got any 
Any questions in the audience? If not, me and Sean have seen each other for a long time. <laughs> We've got a question there. Um, we've got Mike Swift, the microphone's coming to you. There we go. Hello. Thank Hello. you for that. That's phenomenal. Um, Sean, I just wanted to ask you about landscapes in yep. the book. Um, for anyone that hasn't read Tongues of Fire, you set a phenomenal scene um, with textures and materiality, but also with the kind of the musicality that these places have as well, um, inherent in them. And I was wondering, because obviously a memoir is a life lived in writing and we inhabit different spaces as different people throughout our lives. Um, I was just thinking about the Jason Allen Passant line, um, a haunting of landscape by landscape. And I was wondering if you, I, was, I just kind of want to hear you speak about um, inhabiting these kind of landscapes in the book. Yeah, so the book almost takes place in um, a sort of night and day um, as in, there's a long uh, section which takes place in South America uh, in which um, everything is kind of sunlight and heat and um, forests and romance in the book. Um, and then we very quickly move to, to Sweden in the winter um, where there's hardly any light, um, where it's freezing cold, uh, foggy. Uh, I sort of describe it as a sort of film noir uh, sort of setting. Uh, Everyone kind of hurries from place to place and doesn't talk to anyone. Um, landscape in the book becomes very important to me because um, I begin to, to walk out uh, at night uh, through the book uh, and to experience um, these same forests that I knew in the summer months, in the winter months, with an entirely different context, uh, as in, in the summer of the book, uh, there is the beginning of a, of a love story. Um, in the winter of the book, the love story is falling apart. Um, so in some ways, the landscape mirrors that, uh, but it's also true to life. Uh, uh, it's not a sort of pathetic fallacy. It, well, I mean, it's kind of a happy pathetic fallacy in that it, that it uh, suited the structure. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, the landscape of, of this book um, becomes complicit in some ways in, in, in what happens in the book. Um, you know, there are kind of obstructive, deep forests that you can't get through very quickly. Uh, there are dark woodlands um, in which you can kind of hear things that begin to frighten you. Um, and in, so, in some ways they become kind of complicit in the, in the, the haunting aspects of, of the book as well. Um, so I don't think this is a book really that that draws much distinction between the, the, the haunting and the landscape. I think the two of them become uh, accomplices and torturing me <laughs> in the book. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Other questions as well? Um, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I'm very much looking forward to, to reading the book. I know me and you, Sean, we've emailed a few times and, and chatted on social media about our shared love of Hopkins. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you could elaborate a bit more about why you find Hopkins so appealing. I know that in your poetry, there's certainly some Hopkins-esque influence kind of there. And I wonder why, what you find appealing about Hopkins in particular. Um, I guess first and foremost, the, the 
but I admire him almost more than, than not more than any other poet, but he's, he's certainly in my top five. Um, he is incredibly acute observer of the world around him. Um, and I think what I find fascinating about him is that um, he breaks language apart and is able to remake it into something that, um, that makes the world more complex. Um, the poems are always kind of, in some ways, show the complexity of the world by being really complex themselves. Um, and when I started writing this book, I realized that I had followed him around, geographically at least. Uh, so I lived in Liverpool, and now I live in Dublin, uh, and he did the same kind of um, journey. Uh, he died in Dublin. I don't intend to follow him <laughs> in, in that. Um, but I guess in that way, he's, I feel that I meet him in places as well. Um, and so we have this kind of, well, uh, an imagined familiarity with each other. Um, I also um, find him, I'm very moved by him. Um, there's, a, there's a poem of his that I, uh, I've thought about often when I first moved to Ireland uh, called To Seen the Stranger. Um, and the, the second stanza begins, um, I, am in I, I am in Ireland now. Now I am at a third remove uh, from his family, his friends, and his religion. Um, and the final lines of the poem are... Um, shouldn't have tried this. Um, this to hoard unheard, heard unheeded, leaves me a lonely began. Um, and there's a sense of, of, in his poems, hoarding things and not being listened to, or being heard but not being listened to, not being heard, um, leaving him a lonely began. Uh, and I find that really tragic. And uh, in some ways, the book reaches out to him because I kind of feel that so long as I heard him, he wasn't a lonely began anymore. Um, so I was hoping to kind of pull him to reach out a hand. Um, and I do feel a very close connection as an imagined connection, but I, I feel it strongly nonetheless. Uh, yeah, yeah. Other questions from the floor down here? Thanks. Hi, um, this kind of follows on from that question, but I was really interested to hear you discuss the idea of these ghosts and how they follow you around and how they kind of bleed into the memoir. And obviously with a memoir, there's always things that you also leave out. Mm. And so I kind of wanted to ask, um, maybe from the point of view of the Swedish poet, because obviously you've discussed the other one, um, whether your kind of inf uh, the influence that these ghosts had on you informed the content of the memoir or whether the content of the memoir led you to include the mm. ghosts, or whether it was just like a back and forth symbiotic thing? Um, it's a very good question. Uh, and I think it's kind of a bit of both, um, in that the encounters with the poets are, are real. However, if you read a lot of poetry, you encounter a lot of poets. Um, so there are you know, ones that you would choose to, uh, to fit the theme of the book. Um, Karen Boyer. She was always, I bought these kind of four hardback copies in a charity shop in Gothenburg of 
Karin Boyer and three other Swedish modernist poets. And for some reason, she kind of s- stuck out to me. Um, and it seems strange now, looking back, that she was the one that stood out to me because her life most clearly mirrors my own. Um, but I didn't know that until I was kind of translating the poem. So it seems like a sort of uh, coincidence in that way. It felt, again, uh, like we found each other. Um, so she becomes um, probably the, the most tragic intercessor in the book. Um, she committed suicide after finding um, her lover. She had a lover um, in, in Stockholm and she went to visit an old friend in Gothenburg. And when she got there, she realized she was in love with a friend. And then her friend died and then she killed herself, and then because she killed herself, her lover killed herself. It's a terrible story. Um, She is by far the the most uh, tragic figure in the book, Uh, but in some ways the poems that she writes are so so intensely personal towards the end of her life that they serve um, a sort of solace in a way that someone else has been through an experience, but also a warning um, as well. Uh, So she's kind of the the most severe ghost to reckon with in the book. Um, And I guess the more I thought about her, the more severe the reckoning became. Um, So I just became kind of obsessed with including her uh, in the book. Any other questions from the, from the floor? We've got one here. Thank you. I'm, I'm interested in your genre non-conformity. And, the, <laughs> and I'm just looking around where we are, and there's biography and memoirs there, there's fiction there. Mm. If you dare to go down the stairs, there's poetry, mm-hmm. and then a bit further on, there's yeah. more academic-type literature. And if you go out the fire escape, there's a whole different world. And I just wonder, um, having had the experience of moving from poetry to prose memoir, whether you have any sense as to where it will take you next and whether you have any sense as to whether you will be reach some fixity or whether actually it's better to be um, promiscuous in the way in which you write. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I would like to to think that um, I can add strings to the bow as I go. It's not that I kind of discard other strings, but that there might be some possibility in, in a new thing or a new idea that fits a new form um, and that I will try it. Um, this... Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, Claire. I don't know where you're going to put this on the shelf. Uh, <laughs> That's why I've got so many copies. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. It's, um, uh, yeah, I, I think depending on what the idea is that comes to me, um, the form comes afterwards. You know, you find the form to fit the idea. Um, so I have a sense that poems will always come because they seem kind of urgent and um, they don't really come out in any other way. They come out as poems, you know, there are certain ideas that kind of just strike you as a poem. Um, But in terms of bigger things, it's a duration, uh, a sense of duration. 
I would like to to carry on exploring. I, I think it's it's quite nice to. I liked inventing the new form as I went along, which is probably why it doesn't quite fit uh, into into other things. But I wasn't really interested. Um, I didn't really think about what I would call it as I was writing it. It was just a book, um, and in some ways. It's not really my job, you know, it's uh, <laughs> someone else's job. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you call it what, whatever you want. Um, that's that's uh, up to you. And we've got time for maybe one other question just before we hear a final reading from the book, if anyone's got one. If not, thank you so much, everyone, for for coming along uh, on this very warm evening to hear Sean read and talk really generously um, and in depth about this fantastic memoir of which, or whatever we're going to call it, of which there are um, <laughs> a plethora of copies here. They're kind of very now rare first edition, which is sold out. So do get the copies of that, several copies um, afterwards and, and chat Sean and get him to, to sign them as well. Um, thank you very much for the RD for, for Thank you both. As well. Um, but we're going to finish off, um, as we should, just by hearing a final extract of All Down at Darkness Wire. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Thank you, gracious as ever. Um, and to the LRB for, for hosting me. And I, I should take the opportunity to, to, to thank uh, B, my editor, and Alison, my publicist, and Matthews, hiding at the back, um, uh, my agent. Um, I'm going to read a passage... Um, I don't think there is such thing as spoilers in this book, um, but it's uh, from towards the end. Uh, but I don't think I'll ruin the ending by reading it. Um, we go back to the cemetery that the book begins in uh, for, for a moment. Um, and we also hear one of, one of Karin Boyer's poems, uh, which I will read to you in English. Um, although we have printed the Swedish, so you can... Um, uh, you can... Uh, Read that if you would like to. Uh, or if you get the audio book, you will hear me trying to read it in Swedish. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so we're back in the cemetery. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for coming and, and listening. I took myself finally right down to the edge of the stone passage, just far enough so that I could see the light of the moon on the gardens beyond the trees, and I was glad to see it to have a glimpse into that world, that past. As a teenager, I would have walked easily into the darkness, and in times of shock, I seemed to revert back to play out those earlier habits. Now, though, all that was changed. I wasn't numb enough to go back and not confident enough either. But just as I was about to leave, to turn around and take the roads through the, station, through the city to the station, the wind picked up again, blowing up from the river and hurrying down into the gardens. I closed my eyes, steadying myself against it. And this time, the wind was behind me, lifting my collar, billowing my coat. I kept my eyes closed, the gusts blustering around my head, until it felt for a moment as though I were not alone, and it felt as though there were other people with me, their shadows moving at either side of me, gathering around me, lifting me forwards, bearing me with them. I opened my eyes again and looked around. 
If I stared down into the cemetery, the glow of the street lamps behind me, and called out, what would come to me? Would the statues in the oratory wake? Would the graves begin to rupture? Was anybody there? And if there was, would I recognize any of them if they came out of that darkness and stepped towards me? What if it was myself or that lost version of me, a flicker of the past? Would I know his face and would he know mine? All that time I had been haunted by him and still I hardly knew what that self was, that version of me that existed before the world had said become and I had answered in its language. I thought of Hopkins, his line of men walking in the marsh air with their beams following a lantern. At the end of the poem, it is Christ who watches them, whose heart wants them, whose care haunts them, their ransom, their rescue, and first, fast, last friend. And then I remembered one of the last poems Karim Boyer ever wrote, Elias and I had translated it together. In the poem, she also followed a procession, this time of women, dark angels with blue, uh, blue flames like fire flowers in their hair. This is the poem. Those dark angels with blue flames like fire flowers in their black hair know the answers to blasphemous questions. And perhaps they know where the bridge goes from the depths of night to the day. And maybe they know the harbor of unity. And maybe in the Father's house, there is a bright dwelling that has their name. Both of them hoped, one with certainty, one with longing, that there would be a place for those people, a friend to watch them, a room with their name above the lintel. But perhaps, after all, it should never be another place, never be another person. It should be here. The friends should be us. The father's house should be our own. Standing at the foot of that pathway, I realized that maybe that was it, after all. Maybe I could call to them, could call to myself, in my body, in my deeds, in my words, I would set a fire burning for them. I would bring them home. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.